Welcome to Real History, shows what you know about history. On this podcast, we talk about historical movies and television, anything that claims to be based on a true story, and we check how bad did they mess it up? What was life actually like during that time period? Well, that's why we're here, to separate the real history from the real history. My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. And my name is Michael Tynan, and I'm going to cheer myself up by talking about Russian history. Um, my name is Mark, and I'm very tired, and this is going to be very upsetting, because it's the misery of Russia. <laughs> ah, no, it'll be a few laughs along the way. Don't worry. How could there not Good be sense of humor. with a jovial bat creature flying around <laughs> yeah, and Rasputin turning happened. into a magical horse and all sorts? This is, believe it or not, we didn't pick this episode ourselves. This is the Patreon Choice Award yep. thing. Patreon's yep. Choice, I think is what we're calling it, for season four, in which on our Patreon, patreon.com slash realhistorypodcast, our patrons can, uh, it, we're allowed to pick from a series of of suggestions of what we would actually cover right here on the main feed and the top choice was indeed the 1997 animated film Anastasia which narrowly beat out The Da Vinci Code and Charlie Wilson's War there was a bit of a stalemate there they were quite niche selections they were yeah, actually yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were yeah. I expected more love for Bill and Ted's bogus journey I did but, too yeah I know, did too yeah I, I, kept just, I was just glad it wasn't a Da Vinci Code, so I didn't have to fucking watch that. Oh, love <laughs> that's next season. Everyone, save your votes. Join now on the Patreon, and the votes will come up. There's gonna be. We're gonna try to do one of these per season. Just vote to torture Mark, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's not that bad. I mean, it has much like this film. There's not that much of a connection to history, but it's yeah. it's a pretty good film. I think I rewatched yeah. it. I was a like, thriller. thriller, not as bad as I remember. Yeah. It's just fucking Tom Hanks, though. Jesus, it is fucking Tom Hanks. All right, so Anna. Anastasia, a one-sentence summary that is what I'll grace you with, first of all. Uh, It's pretty convoluted. Uh, A princess narrowly escapes execution in a violent revolution but ends up with amnesia and ten years later is convinced by a con man to pretend to be the princess that she actually is for profit and they travel across countries escaping the evil magician trying to stop them from reaching Paris and reuniting with her long-lost family. Boom! Wow. That that just takes me back to school with an English teacher just looking at you going, Use full stops. Yeah, yeah, I, know, yeah, yeah. I, I had Punk- to punctuation. I just punctuation. <laughs> I started writing. I was like, "It's a one sentence summary." I have to keep going because all of those aspects are really pivotal to the film. No, true, true. Yeah. No, it was excellent, Jacob, yeah. and it does sum up the film very, very well. Um, especially if you haven't seen it. Which Mark, you watched it this morning, I believe. Uh, yes, uh, yeah, yes. I, 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 I might have been somewhat distracted while watching it, but I have seen large parts of the film. Let's say. Did you see Rasputin use his hand as sort of a, I suppose, like a magical detachable hand that he could hook people with? I don't think so. It was very early in the morning when I was watching it. Very true. Very true. So Anastasia, do you want to tell us a bit more about the film itself, what we're covering today, Michael? We will. Why not? Uh, So it is, as you said, 1997. It's an hour and 34 minutes. So not it's it it will fly by. It will fly by. And it's (laughs) (laughs) directed by Donald Bluth, who is kind of known for an American tale. So these are all really mid 90s sort of films. Yeah, I was going to say if for those not into animation history, Mark, 
Um, Don Bluth is basically someone who worked at Walt Disney, uh, left and started his own animation company and worked together with Steven Spielberg a lot, which was, as you you mentioned, uh, an American tale, an animated... The Land Before Time. The Land Before Time, the dinosaur one. one. Um, And Anastasia, indeed, being another uh, popular one that uh, they put out from the Don Bluth side. Ironically, now, this film, Anastasia, is available to see on Disney+. Plus. So it's presumably for, Disney it's just went back and bought his. Yeah, I think I'd so, say that's yeah. exactly what's happened. <laughs> Don Bluth is still alive, I believe, and uh, maybe oh. making uh, YouTube videos on uh, animation at oh, this wow. stage. Cool. Something along those lines is what I saw. Also, we have Gary Goldman, uh, who directed the film too, and he worked on similar. Pro- he seems to have worked with Donald Bluth a lot. Uh, written by Susan Gautier, Bruce Graham, and Bob Zudiker who um another kind of mid 90s but this one is the, the hunchback in notre dame oh yeah that's an it, actual disney yeah film. kind of yeah it's, well, he, it's was a, he, he was one of the writers on it yeah movie. okay so, so it, there is a good pedigree there i'd say and it's based not so much on the history of um the romanoff family and anastasia we're going to go into that by the way uh, if you were wondering <laughs> um but it's more based on a play a french play um from 1952 by marcel moret called Anastasia. So it's sort of a, a based on a dramatization already, I suppose, which mm. is important to say, you know. Um, in terms of trivia, it gets, I was shocked, 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, it is good. I did like it, but I mean, I didn't expect uh, You know, as, as Jacob Jack said, I'm, I'm not that familiar with the not, what 90s animation. Like, I've, I've seen very, very few of those Disney animated movies. But you'd probably, I would imagine people who are into animation would just say on a technical level, it's really, it's really yeah, impressive. It's, it like is, it's, it is quite beautifully yeah, made. It's, it's really well done. Yeah. yeah. And the music's not bad as well. Um, a couple of good action sequences, I would say too. Rasputin does, is one of the most memorable characters yeah, in course. it for obvious reasons, as he is throughout history. Yeah. Um, and I suppose it did do well. Like it, it was made. It was made for fifty million, but made about one hundred and forty million did worldwide really well. in the box office. So that's not bad for nineteen ninety-seven. There you go. Yeah, like it is a while ago at this stage. And then the cast. Um, I was shocked by a few of these people, so I didn't really realize because, especially if you saw this when you were a kid, so to speak. It's Meg Ryan plays Anya or Anastasia, uh, depending on who you want to. Um, which way you want to look at it. Um, <laughs> Who you want to believe. <laughs> exactly. So that's the Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolovia. Then Dimitri, who kind of, as Jacob mentions, he's sort of your, what would you call him? Your... The con man. The con man, yeah. Uh, that's John Cusack of High, high Fidelity. Yeah, John Cusack and, was having a big moment in the late 90s, wasn't he? That's when he was like really, like he was in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Sort of 96 to 2000 around that time. And then Christopher Lloyd or Doc Brown is Ross Rasputin. Yeah, brilliant. yeah. Uh, and I think he does a good job. Um, Vladimir is played by Kelsey Grammer. Always, yeah. always a great voice actor. So Kelsey Grammer just has a brilliant voice, like you know. And the memorable, probably the most memorable kind of thing about the film is nearly Bartok, is it? The, the kind yeah. of weird bat. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, he's, he's voiced by Hank Azaria, who Azaria, is... Azaria, yeah. Uh, he's a uh, Simpsons voice actor, a le- right? A, leg- a legendary it. voice actor. Yeah. yeah. Chief Wiggum, Moe, and Apu, I believe. And then we have, <laughs> I love this, Angela Lansbury, who, so Murder, She Murder, Wrote. She Wrote, yeah. Uh, I think anyone who's watched TV during the day as a student will know who... Angela Lansbury. Or anyone is. who has a grandmother. Uh, yeah, she plays the, or she voices the Dowager Empress Marie, who's, mm. who's sort of 
um, living in Paris and searching for Anastasia, really, you know, in exile. And then the young Anastasia in the film is played by Kirsten Dunst. Oh, really? Yeah. I so, didn't notice that. So it is a bit of an all-star cast, That's all-star. really. Yeah. She, she had become really famous in the mid-90s as a child as well, right, from mm-hmm. Interview with the Vampire. Yeah. Kirsten Dunst, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think all that, in that's all, a, that's a, no wonder it costs so much to make. <laughs> yeah, and actors, it's right. I mean, and uh, it had hundreds of artists working on it. Yeah. I wrote a third of which were actually working out of Dublin, Ireland. Uh, another connection there oh, to yeah. our uh, yeah, now. our local spot when um, Ireland was cheap, obviously. Yeah, in the nineties, there's loads of money, and everything was cheap. Yeah, um, golden area, you might say. So I think how much you like this film might depend on like if you grew up with it. I think that's the result of the Rotten Tomatoes score, maybe, or I don't know if that was the critics or the the people's choice that's or whatever. That's your aggregate, that's yeah. Your so aggregate. that's your right. crit- critics aggregate. Okay, yeah, it's not not too bad, and it's honestly like for a '90s animated film, it's pretty well put together. But going up against Disney films again, as I said, if you grew up with this, you probably have some nostalgia connected to it. If you're watching it now as an adult. I I think I'd seen it maybe at some stage when I was a teenager and I was like, yeah, mm. whatever. Uh, I didn't love it. It's the Disney formula in that it has music, it has a romance, it has comedy, but it doesn't always hit all the right notes to me. Uh, but then that said, Rumor in St. Petersburg, the song at the start, that's a bop. Uh, it's got a lot of fun <laughs> it parts is a bop, in it. Yeah, it is. And it does a good job of exploring this myth that Anastasia survived, which is obviously part of what we're talking about today. And I'm sure it's the main introduction of that myth to a lot of people of our generation as well. I think the Winter Palace um, in St. Petersburg, that, that was really well done. Yeah. Uh, although I was wondering, like, considering the revolution took place after this, uh, why it hadn't been looted but anyway that's another, <laughs> that's that's another question I, I made a note <laughs> like, oversight like, this place looks great <laughs> so they're in the palace 10 years after the revolution it's yeah. just immaculate yeah, and the, great. but and for no reason it's just just this con man who seems to have access and the former yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean look there's one or two plot holes I mean yeah, yeah, there's a couple, of, a couple where, where, of where, where would it stand for you Jacob in, in terms of like the in terms of like the 90s animated movies generally it wouldn't be at like a top 10 or no. not for me but that's again it. I think that's because I didn't watch it in the 90s mm. i'd probably feel differently yeah, about okay. it um but no yeah I, I can't say i love it uh, it's not, it's not the land before time like you know no, that's very true which very i true. loved but i haven't seen probably since it came out yeah same <laughs> let's just assume it's as good as we were yeah remember. exactly yeah. <laughs> um anything else on the details of the film no i think that's sort of the the main points like obviously we, we would say one thing this is an animation so if we will go into a few inaccuracies here but we're obviously not going to be too hard on it like it is a children's movie at the it end is, of the yeah, day um and it is based on a on a, a drama so to speak you know uh but i think one thing that is interesting um that you wanted to go into jacob was the kind of different conspiracies that surround anastasia yeah i mean the the idea like the plot of the film is that this con man is like let's uh get some cast someone to pretend to be anastasia right and then the twist being it's the actual anastasia what a coincidence great setup for a film and then they have to traipse across europe you know to to find her family but like it's you mentioned the play that it's based on but there is also a film that was inspired by that play with ingrid uh, bergman and yule brenner that's from 1956 there's a musical of this now the musical is based on this film but like there have been depictions of this story or yeah. versions of this story going back to the time when it happened right like it was these were actual rumors there were actual uh, imposters and impersonators pretending to be these people and have been up until you know the late 90s like basically recently, yeah. yeah so 
Actually, the the earliest one being from 1928, there was a movie made called Clothes Make the Woman, and which follows uh, a woman who turns up to play the part of a rescued Anastasia for a Hollywood film and ends up being recognized as being actually Anastasia. So, like, very similar plot from 1928. You know, wow. talkies had just started at yeah, that stage. I think yeah, people, you know? like, what, like when we will go into what actually happened to the Romanov family, obviously, but, mm. like, people... It's it's only human to have a little bit of hope that maybe someone survived, you know, that type of way. Yeah. So I think these conspiracies, there's a, there's a reason so many exist, you know? Yeah, and I think uh, at the time in Europe as well, I mean, this is a sort of a, a traumatic event mm. in one of, in Europe's largest country, like population-wise, Europe's largest country. And, and like the overthrow of the czars, that, like any time a crown authorities overthrown in europe it's it's a, it's a traumatic look at the french revolution like yeah. it just caused endless wars you know so i think it's 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 definitely a cultural flashpoint so it's not that surprising that there would be a, a sort of a, a modern day folk legend born out of what happened here like you know? yeah and it should be said this was fueled by the regime in russia as well Absolutely. because yeah. they had reason to obfuscate the fact that they were dead uh <laughs> because you know the german government because these people had german heritage they were re- demanding the safe return of princesses of german blood and russia had a peace treaty with the germans didn't want to upset them by letting them know they murdered these women so <laughs> they just told them they'd been moved to a safe location at the same time you had uh boris Soloviev, uh, the husband of Rasputin's daughter. He was going around as a con man as well, asking for money for a uh, Romanov impersonator to uh, escape to China, uh, got uh, young women willing to masquerade as various members of the family. And so this was actually happening during the time. Though I should say, just as an example, we can look at the story of Anna Anderson, who is uh, the most famous, probably, yeah. of mm. the impersonators who emerged publicly, like, it was 1920, 1922, around then, uh, claimed to have faked her death uh, among family and servants, and escaped, a common theme, escaping with the help of a sympathetic guard, which makes sense, because yep. not everyone was on board with murdering the Tsar. <laughs> murdering and, the uh, children. And the children, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so she actually went on and had a legal battle for recognition that lasted from 1938 to 1970. Wow. So it's the longest case in German court history. Uh, and final decision being, there was not sufficient evidence to conclude that she was the Grand Duchess, and she died in uh, 1984. Her body was cremated, but don't worry, though, we did do DNA tests after that once we'd gotten uh, around to that, comparing her DNA to the blood of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, and uh, concluded that it was def- definitely not Anastasia. And DNA tests will reoccur throughout this story yeah. as we very <laughs> thoroughly deba- debunk the myth that Anastasia was uh, still alive. <laughs> yeah, DNA tests kind of have, I suppose, put an end to yeah. the rumor mill a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But so it's so recent, right? Like mm. because uh, yeah, we'll save that for the end. But, but it's also just a popular trope trope in in fiction, isn't it? Like the one surviving member of the dynasty kind of thing. I mean, that's what goes on. That's what Game of Thrones is about, essentially. I mean, like she, like Daenerys Targaryen is essentially Anastasia, right? I mean, that's that's what it is. That's right? true. It's a very compelling yeah. story because. Mm. Um, mm. Like it's actually kind of jarring when you watch 
the start of this film when people are like singing and dancing yeah. and, and, and like murder yeah. but it's jarring to me because this film is made like if you have any con- concept of russian history at all and yeah. you watch the start of this film like you can, you get why disney princesses are set mostly in fictional lands oh, of this one's vaguely inspired by france this one's a bit danish yeah. but like if you actually connect it to history and recent history like this like the plot of this rasputin uses magic to make the people revolt right like that's the motivation like they had no other reason to revolt against uh, yeah, these people right yeah, yeah. and this idea that oh she was just an innocent princess and uh, like her family is depicted as this lovely group of folks you they know they did nothing wrong they did nothing wrong yeah the roman <laughs> So Roman elves, yeah. The name <laughs> don't, don't, they never. They're don't look innocent. into it. They're just a bunch of saints. They actually are now in don't the Orthodox don't, Church. Don't look into it. Don't worry saints. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about it. They're fine. Yeah, so it's, uh, as you said, it's a very compelling story, but Mm. the fact, like, if it was set in a fictional world, it'd be much easier to be on board with the plot, uh, you know, compared to this, but, yeah. Um, Because it's not set in a fictional world, it always tries, and look, this because I'm obviously a history nerd, whatever, but it's just, what a weird choice, like. What, what, like let's humanize the Romanovs and like downplay the Russian Revolution. <laughs> it's such a strange choice for a Disney princess, you know. Very weird. Yeah, a Bluth princess indeed. Uh, oh, sorry, a Bluth princess. But, but yeah, no, no, apologies like, to Bluth. Well, it's Disney now, though, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose. Eventually, everything is Disney. Oh, Princess Leia is a Disney princess. <laughs> but like, <laughs> the mouse will always win. Yeah. The mouse always wins. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So, um. <laughs> You're one Anna, that's just one example, right? Like, on Wikipedia, you'll find, like, a list of Romanov impersonators. Anastasia wasn't the only one. Right. Of course, people would impersonate, uh, what's his name, Alexei? Alexei, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. who was the actual prince. Like, of course, Mm -hmm. people impersonated him as well. One fun one was uh, an actual spy, uh, Michael Golonievski, who was a Polish officer of the... Uh, Poland's Ministry of Public Security and he was also a uh, intelligence agent for the Soviets uh, oh, wow. during the 1950s and then in the late 1950s he became a triple agent because he was giving both Polish and Soviet secrets to the CIA Amazing. so he was a CIA agent <laughs> as well uh, defected to the US then in the early 60s and then just later made unsubstantiated claims to be uh, Alexei uh, Robinhood. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, wow. He it, that's, it, a char- that's some character. That's like. That's, it's a, it's yeah. an especially fun one because it's like he he has an identity card that gives the date of birth of 1922, so 18 years younger, and he claims that the hemophilia <laughs> made him appear younger than he really was, and he was twice a child. <laughs> nice save. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, it's believable. That's what I like about it. It's believable. And he's still working for the CIA at this stage. They were embarrassed about it. Just gave him a pension and like shut up. And yeah. Go away. Right. <laughs> so there's a fair few like the, you, you can look bad, bro. It's a it's a it's a trope in general stories. It's mm. Daenerys, but it's also like it's a um, it's a compelling story that started as soon as you know they disappeared, you know, and kept going until like the the, the Game now. of Thrones series. There's like four examples of that in the, in the novels. Like there's because yeah. there's another Targaryen who's a false tar- or we we don't know in the books if he's a false Targaryen who pr- who pops up claiming to be Aegon. Then there's Jon Snow is kind of like the last Targaryen. But also, Spoilers. also one of the, one of the Stark kids, Rick on Stark, he's like, what happens to him? He's the last Stark, he's, you know, because they all think Bran is dead. So there's like there's four different versions of it in the one series just there, you know. But I think yeah, it's it's all over, it's all over fiction, it's all over media. It's great for it. mystery. Yeah, yeah. 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 But uh, setting aside Game of Thrones, let's get into the actual uh, physical location, Russia, 
the Tsardom. Who, why, why are we talking about them like they're bastards? Like, why, <laughs> how did we arrive at this point? If we rewind a little bit, I think maybe we need to give some context of this particular yeah. dynasty. I think Russia, Russian history is, is uh, even for European history, I think is, is kind of especially bleak. It's especially miserable. Um, an interesting thing, is, is, I think, that kind of stands out or that marks out Russian uh, royal history maybe differently to a lot of or a lot of contemporary European countries is that there's really only two dynasties in the entire existence of Russian of the Russian Tsardom, mm. which is pretty unusual when you consider the length of time. Um, so to take you way back to the, sort of when European countries begin to be formed, which is the sort of the, the ninth and tenth century, in that time in Russia in the eight hundreds, it's uh, much like a lot uh, like Ireland certainly is like this. Um, it's very disparate. Uh, it's tribal. These are Slavic tribes. They live across the territories of what we would now regard as Ukraine, Russia, Poland, up into the north, even into like Lithuania, Latvia. Um, and were these Vikings or no? At, so I, I'm just about to get that. Mm-hmm. So at this point, no. So these are these are these are Slavic speaking peoples. They are speaking sort of proto versions of what would become Russian, what would become Ukrainian, what would become even forms of Polish. Um, the various Slavic languages into into that sort of disparate, uh, disunified um, uh, polities came Vikings, particularly from Sweden, particularly coastal Sweden. Whoop, so, whoop. so yeah, there's a few of your lads involved here. New year for like a new you know. Exactly. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the reason why initially they will have come into contact is because. Um, Swedish travelers, Swedish Vikings, or as they were known in the area of Varangians, were looking for sea routes to Constantinople, and so because that's what they who were wasn't yeah sure who yeah who 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 did want to uh, deal with the fabled Mikkelgård, so they were trying to sail through rivers, which went through Ukraine, Russia into the Black Sea to find routes down to uh, down to Constantinople, and because they're doing that, they are making contacts and coming into coming into. Uh, conflict or uh, alliance or various political sort of um, entanglements with the local Slavic tribes. Now, that is very familiar with how Vikings involved themselves in Ireland or involved themselves in Britain, involved themselves in, in, in like southern Italy. It's, it's, a, it's a familiar trope. And that is what essentially happens in, in, uh, in Russia. Sure, they were aiming for, you know, uh, Constantinople. But if you, if you run into a few uh, tribes along the way, you, you know the word Slav in Swedish means slave. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's an interesting thing because like Constantinople and, and the, the sort of the looming specter of the, of, the, of the empire has a really formative influence. And you could even say still has an influence on... Russian society, what becomes Russian society, and certainly what becomes the concept of what a czar is. Mm. It is principally the point of why czar is the Slavic for Caesar. It's, it's literally the same word. So when you think of like the, the German word Kaiser meaning emperor, czar is the, is the Slavic version of that. It's variously spelled T-Z-A-R or C-Z-A-R, just depending on which, which sort of dialect. Yeah. Um, so in, into, the, into the, this kind of patchwork uh, disparate polities come these Varangian warriors and as as happens in western european countries there's no difference in the east uh, their ability to project military force Varangian ability to be mobile and project force hit and run tactics using good weaponry 
and warfare styles that aren't common in the in the area, they begin to become used as mercenaries by the various Slavic leaders. And over time, those mercenary lords begin to impose their own power. And over time, what ends up happening is you have polities of Slavs who are who essentially have a military ruling class of Varangians, of Swedish Vikings. So they essentially, through their use of organized military establish themselves as a military ruling class over various Slavic tribes and eventually that coalesces around a guy called Rurik. Would just to interrupt it would a lot of kind of mercenaries like the Varangians, would they have been maybe even paid with land? Oh no and, doubt about it. And no because of that then married to the married to the, the prominent leader's daughter. You, yeah. You know, all of the yeah and, and not just not just the leader, but like the leaders would have been married to the daughters of the le- of the Slavic leaders. Yeah. Which is, you know, again, uh, not to labour the point with Ireland. It's exactly what happened here. Yeah, typical it's, Viking stuff. Check typical. out our Vikings trilogy yeah. from last season. Where this we, is what they do. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, this coalesces around a guy called Rurik, who is a, a Swedish Viking, and this is around the year eight seventy nine. And this is sort of given as it, almost like he's he's not necessarily called the Tsar, but he is the first Tsar essentially. And Rurik is in charge basically of Russia it's not called Russia there are various polities formed around towns which are built out of forts and trading posts like Novgorod and you later get places like uh, Kiev comes from here which is referred to the people there are referred to as the Kievian Rus which is where the city Kiev comes from but also where the name Russia comes from that's the local Slavic term for what they refer to as uh, the rowers the people who row that's literally what it means so uh. Russia is the land of the rowers i.e the Swedes, mm-hmm. the Vikings. Um, um, and essentially what happens is... Um, Just like fucking St. Petersburg. <laughs> yeah, yeah right, exactly. We might get to that later. We'll, get, we'll get it back one of these days. <laughs> I feel it coming. Yeah. So the, so the, the, so By the, us, I definitely mean uh, Finland and not... <laughs> oh, no, no, do the Swedes. No, 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 definitely not. It was all, it was all the Finns. Um, yeah, so, so, so Rurik and his direct descendants, like his first one is, t- takes a Slavic name, he's called Vladimir. And they establish rulership over these sort of principalities, which sort of coalesce around one kind of king of kings or high king or whatever way you might want to describe it. They are influenced to get involved in um, sort of foreign policy in that there are other peoples in Europe who are quite mobile at this time. The Bulgars, before Bulgaria has become a country, are, are kind of pressing on the borders of what the Slavs would regard as their territory. There's increasing uh, trade links and military links and mercenary hiring from the Byzantine Empire as it is facing its challenges from the rise of the Caliphate in the, in the, in the East. So it's not, it's not isolated in, in the way that sort of sometimes people think of Russia as being this isolated place really isn't. Ukraine, uh, Poland, Russia, what's now Bulgaria, the Eastern Empire, all of these things are all intermingled politically. What happens eventually with the Rurik dynasty is um, you eventually get a leader who's reasonably weak and, and the centralised authority dissolves into, into, into regional polities, which are, like, are based around Novgorod, based around the cities, essentially. Um, and for a while, the, the Rurik dynasty, while there still is not, uh, nominally a Rurik czar, um, his power is kind of more or less ignorable. What happens at this point in, in European history is is the Mongol invasion. So the Mongols arrive into Eastern Europe and they do what the Mongols did in Eastern Europe, <laughs> which is what they did in you know in the Middle East, which is really knock over the established central authority by weakening the power. They would have sacked towns, cities, 
So was this like the 1300s around that type of era, more or less? So the Mongols come in in, in, in the 1200s. Right. They have already uh, knocked over the Islamic Golden Age yeah. in, by wrecking the House of Wisdom in Iraq, which I think we mentioned in other episodes. Yeah. Within sort of 20 years, they're in Russia. So it's the, it's the 1230s around then. Um, and they and, exact tribute a lot of the time. Yeah, they yeah. exact tribute. And, and basically what the Mongols do is they prey on the fact that there's disorganization. This is really uh, like a typical thing in history, and it explains why often smaller populations can dominate larger populations. It's all to do with your political uni- unification or, or, your, or lack thereof. The Mongols come in as in, like striking like lightning on these huge cavalry armies that the Slavs had never really encountered this kind of thing. They don't know, what they, they know what's going on. But not just that, they can't, they don't have a centralized authority that, can, that really is being respected to the point where they can't really rally an army that's sufficient to defeat the Mongols in the field. So, they're really just sort of under the Mongol yoke, really, for quite a lot of time. And this is a century after the centralized authority is already dwindled, so you can imagine how difficult it would be to even resist uh, mm-hmm. the, the Mongols. But of course, eventually, the Mongols suffer their own mm-hmm. political disunity, as is, as is always the case in every yeah. empire. Yeah. So they begin to fall apart, and, and local rebellions break out. Uh, the Mongols are forced out, there's massacres, um, various different... Um, uh, um, leaders come forward some of them Rurik some of them not eventually this all coalesces in a man called Ivan the Terrible who which great name uh, which, is, which is which is a we could do a whole episode on but I won't labour too much but he essentially comes to power and reorganises and reestablishes a central authority really begins to stamp the idea of the Tsardom having absolute power mm. and in the wake of there being several centuries of just of just a mess and and poverty and because of the warfare there's also famine and there's also there's also like a lack of ability to organize for for uh, trade so so the, the the territories that we think of as ukraine russia um uh, belarus are really not in a good shape when when ivan the terrible as reign begins and he's largely responsible for creating the beginnings of what you might think of as sort of a national pride or a national identity. This is and a time he's around of patriotism. Fifteen forties, yeah. yeah. So he's the, he's the fifteen hundreds, yeah. So he's he's so to put it in context, he is in, he is a, a contemporary of like Henry VIII mm. and Elizabeth I. He's around that time, you know. So so it's 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 modern, it's early modern history essentially at this point. And he's the one mark as well that kind of establishes. It's a myth, I suppose. It, it remains to be seen whether it's actually true or not. But this myth that Russia is too vast and uh, too enormous and too spread out yes. for for democracy, yeah. or it, that it requires one man rule, and um, and even in his uh, his um his coronation, mm-hmm. apparently he is apparently he did say only absolute power. Uh, will safeguard Russia. Yeah. And this myth continues down through the centuries and we'll see it with the Romanovs too. It becomes, that concept becomes tied to the idea of national identity. To, mm. to, to, but it's also linked very heavily into what you must remember around this time as well is when the Mongols are there, the Slavic populations, the princes of these various regions that haven't coalesced yet are really looking south to the Byzantine Empire and taking a lot of lead from them as this like great European Christian power. And the Slavs are really heavily Christianized, but Christianized on the Byzantine model. Yeah. And the princes for prestige will often look to the Byzantine Empire for wives. So they will try and they will try and get like, you know, 
the best thing obviously would be the daughter of an emperor but you would get you know the daughter of a prestigious general or a local you know a local and this ruler. is why the orthodox and this is why the orthodox church is so so powerful in you know, or becomes powerful in what becomes russian ukraine or whatever and that's why they, they they are part of the eastern tradition rather than the catholic tradition in the west so all of these things are sort of coalescing together with with with, with ivan the terrible by the time he he he's there he's the guy that kind of takes all of the ingredients if you like and sort of stamps it together and marries the concept of the central authority the powerful authority of the czar being the one that brings order defeats the enemies and and establishes a sort of a pride and a christian goes without saying he's also appointed by god according to himself I mean, yeah, of co- yeah, like yeah obviously <laughs> going back to diocletian this yeah, is the diocletian yeah, yeah. thing you know this is the like oh well i'm god's appointed representative didn't and, you know you know it's a, yeah and you know if you if, look if you're the, if you were the if you're an average joe in russia like you don't fucking know any better all you, all you know is well he does have a shiny problem. hat so yeah 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 i take i don't oh, have a shiny, a shiny hat, hat to i'm gonna fair. believe him yeah he's, he's, it was a shiny <laughs> hat. and if i choose not to believe him that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I may as well. There's also a cataclysmic event before he's he's in power that we must remember as well, which was which is the fall of Constantinople. So the Byzantine Empire, the Roman Empire, is f- definitively ended in 1453 when the Ottoman Empire conquers Constantinople. That leaves Russia thinking of itself as the final defender of Orthodox Christianity. So it begins. Ivan the Terrible and his successors. And the Romanovs really get into this, really lean heavily into the, the idea that they're the third Rome. Yeah, like the, that Moscow is the third. Moscow's Rome. the third Rome. Yeah. We're we're the the legacy of the empire, like you know, because we're we're the ones who have taken on the legacy of, the, and because they're so intermarried, of course, as well, they take on the legacy of we're the defenders of Christianity. So that that that's a, a big part of their psyche. Ivan um, the Terrible has has uh, as, as often happens with European royalty, his his, his appointed heir dies. And so the guy who was never meant to be Tsar becomes Tsar, which is a guy called Fyodor I. Now, Fyodor I is the last Rurik. And some historians think he was suffering from um, mental illness. Some people think he had uh, disabilities of various kinds. And he was a particularly ineffective ruler. And under his rule as Tsar, a lot of the work that his father had done began to sort of unravel. We have letters that was sent back and forth between him and Elizabeth, Queen of England, where she's offering political alliance and trade deals and he doesn't seem to really understand what she's saying. And there's a, there's, there was one alleged incident where he gets really furious because somebody didn't use all of his titles when addressing him and he just has them executed. Like, just crazy, you know. Maybe they are the third Rome. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, that does, it sounds, sounds yeah. imperial. <laughs> so eventually uh, he dies, but the problem is he just no heir. Um, and in this time, there's been political, because of his mismanagement, or, well, that's easy to say, but one of the reasons is his mismanagement. A war has sparked with Poland, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is the, which is the bordering power. And their king has claimed the throne of, of, of Russia. There's an invasion, and, and it's, it's, the Russian forces are a bit disunified, and what follows Fyodor's uh, death is what they call the time of the trouble. And Russia again begins to dissolve into sort of disunity, and um, the Poles are grabbing land. Jacob, you'll be happy to know that the Swedish crown gets involved at this point as well because they fancy having a bit of land. Sure, so when do we not? The, the king of Sweden, Gustavus of Adolphus, he decides he'll get involved as well. So he has a nice little invasion. So Russia is in a bad way, and there's no central ruler. 
And that goes on really for quite a while until we get to a man called Michael Romanov. And Michael Romanov is a nobleman. His family are originally of German descent. Um, he is related. Uh, he's, a, he's a cousin first removed of Fyodor. So he is related to the, to the Rurik's. Crucially for him, he's also related to the, the last Byzantine emperor family, the Paleologos. So he, he's related to the Paleologos family as well. So he has that sort of, he's kind of German, he's kind of Russian, he's kind of a Viking, he's kind of a Roman. He has that kind of thing. And the name, obviously, Romanov is, you know, it's actually Romanova is, is actually what their name is. But anyway, it's, Ro- it's Russianized, uh, Rus- Russicized, Russianized? Russified. Russified yeah. into Ro- Romanov, yeah. So Mikhail, I presume. Does that mean exactly, of yeah. Rome? Yeah. yeah. Yes. New Rome. Romanova means right. New Rome, yeah. Nova. So of the New Romans is what his name is. Um, so he is essentially elected by a council of nobles to be czar. Because there's a recognition that, like... We're just going to get conquered. The Polish are just going to conquer us. Like, we're, you know, we can't have what happened with the Mongols again. We, can't, we just can't have it. Like, and, and the Swedes are here as well. Like we, just, you know, uh, just and and in, in Swedish history, like when they arrive into Russia, it's a bad time for everyone. Like the Swedes would fuck the place up. Like that's what mm. that's what happens. Like, and so so essentially, what happens is he manages to rally the sort of the national sentiment, the national forces. The, the the nobles, which is unlike them in Russian history, they rally in and row in behind the emperor, in, in behind the czar here. And he leads a series of battles against the Polish king, who's called Vladislav Vasa. And he, he uh, mm. pop, pop, I wonder, is he related to the Swedish? Sounds, uh, yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, sounds like it. Because so this is the 1600s This now. is the 1600s. Gustav Vasa uh, became king of Sweden in the 1500s, yes. so... And then, yeah, we there was a bit, we've been in Poland before, you know. Yes, so the deluge, the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, yeah. We don't have to get into. It. So, so, there, so there, <laughs> it wasn't yeah. great. It was, yeah, so a dark period of Swedish history. So, Romanov, Michael Romanov, uh, leads a series of clashes against the, the Polish king uh, Vladislav Vasa, Vladislav the Fourth Vasa, um, all of which it culminates in. Look, it's not the cleanest victory of all time. They do lose some of their Baltic territories. Uh, Sweden is not a in this time period is not a power that just sits down. It, you know, you, you don't just beat them; they they're just always there <laughs> in the Baltic Sea with their fleet and and making making everyone have a hard time. The Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth is still a power at this time as well. But a peace treaty comes about, which which essentially uh, establishes uh, a, a workable Russian kingdom, a workable Russian state, with the Romanovs recognized as not just. God's appointed leader, but elected by the other nobles, sort of accepted by the the locals and the and the nobles alike, and in in some ways, or certainly the way they would spin it, they're the saviors of Russia. Mm. So this Michael Romanov guy comes in and he's doing he's doing pretty well. So it's on this basis that the Romanov dynasty really derives its reputation and its power, legitimacy, and its, and its legitimacy. Yeah, and realistically. At this point in Europe, like I mean, no royal house really has could claim to be more legitimate than the Romanovs. Really, I mean, they're they are elected. They are also related to all the other previous royals. It's it's you know they they were they were the only game in town really. And this is why we only have two dynasties because, as I yes. said, that's early sixteen hundreds. Exactly. So literally for three hundred years, the Romanovs ruled over Russia. Like unchallenged. Sixteen thirteen to nineteen seventeen. Three hundred and four yeah. years yeah. of a dynasty, which isn't bad. And, let's and, be honest. And, and considering the Rurik's had been had been you know 
look, it's hard to say when you could actually call them the, the czar, but they had had some level of power from sort of 879 until until like the time of trouble. So, you know, the 879 until the 1500s. So two very long dynasties. It's very unusual in European history to just have two dynasties over a powerful people and a powerful country, you know, highly unusual. Yeah. And uh, given that we're more than halfway through this episode, we won't go through all the 300 years to get there. But as you said, they're unchallenged. They're quite popular at the start there. So yeah. any key events leading up to them eventually becoming very, very unpopular. Yes. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, yes. like there well, are one or two. <laughs> along the way, obviously, this dynasty did have a good run, as you said. You had like Peter the Great, you know, mm. Catherine the Great, um, Alexander the First, who defeated Napoleon famously. Yeah. So, you know, you did have a good few highlights, but we did eventually get to Nicholas the Second. Um, so, at the early uh, turn of the uh, end of the nineteenth century, yeah. uh, early twentieth century, he comes to power. Uh, with his wife, Alexandra of Hesse. And I suppose what's... The film actually opens in 1916. Um, and it is one inaccuracy in the film because you see this opulent um, celebration in the opening <laughs> scene of the film in the Winter Palace where everybody's... You know, it's, 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 a, it's a massive party, essentially, yeah. commemorating the 300th anniversary of the Romanov dynasty. In fact, that actually took place in um, 1913, so mm. a few years previously. Um, but by the time of 1917, so by the time we're getting to uh, this crucial year in Russian and, I suppose, world history, world history um, the Romanovs had become extremely unpopular. And there's a few different reasons for this. Like, I, first and foremost, I just think they didn't like sharing power. Like, they were autocrats they were to their core. They were very you know? into the whole idea of absolute power. They didn't yeah. really didn't like the idea of parliaments, and, and which, which, had which was re- becoming increasingly popular at the time. So popular in Europe. I mean, I mean, all of almost all of the European powers by by the 20th century, they have the ones that have monarchies, they're constitutional monarchies, you know, there's parliaments really making the calls, yeah. you know. See, I was going to say what, what you were describing earlier, that idea of the um, the consciousness of a country or the, the mm. concept of like absolute rule was needed to save them. And yeah. it becomes so ingrained that, I mean, that's what we're seeing in Russia today, yes. a hundred years after yeah, it's big daddy this issues, film. Like, it's big, you know? big daddy issues. But yeah. on the other hand, too, to some uh, places where, uh, you know, that have had it a bit more relaxed for the f- last few hundred years, a lot of Europe, Sweden just Sweden, as an example, sure. they're yeah. like, Denmark, this yeah. king guy, we, yeah, we'll keep him around. That's but fine. Like, yeah. That's fine. He doesn't get involved. That's just fine. Administrate yeah. people he, He's a ribbon rule. cutter, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, but it was entirely different in Russia. And Russia was probably the last real autocracy in, for, of, of a large country anyway yeah. in Europe at this time and Nicholas II when he came to power in 1896 he inherited the same prejudices as his um, his father uh, Alexander III who was an autocrat to his core he, mm. he had seen his own father Alexander II uh, in the 1860s who had been the one, the great reformer he had um, actually abolished serfdom, so a form of kind of indentured servitude yeah. that you were tied to the land. He had abolished that. And for his troubles, as far as Nicholas II could see, he got assassinated. Yeah. So Nicholas saw this as a young child. He saw his grandfather get assassinated. Um, so 
there was such a great fear at this stage that mm. the Romanovs lived in a, in, in a gilded cage. Um, they weren't really aware of the sufferings of of Russia and we have to say there wasn't just Russia at this time the empire stretched the empire's massive you know point, yeah. from Poland to Afghanistan and it's touching nearly onto Korea so like it's, like, bigger, it's bigger than the territory that you now consider to be Russia yeah which is still pretty big which is bloody enormous yeah. Yeah. so yeah. within this massive territory you're still this this idea of still ruling it from one man is is in is in existence, and this is obviously an absolute disaster, you know, because you can't. It's hard to administrate all that land. I assume it's hard for one guy to run a city. Never mind yeah. a fucking empire, you know that size. This is crazy. Yeah, exactly. And you suppose, like, when he came to power, he was petitioned immediately to create a, you know, a, a Russian Duma or Parliament, you know. And he, he referred to these things as senseless dreams. So, like, <laughs> not a good start, you know. And this was in response to people who had humbly come to him and be like, maybe you want to share, give us, like, a little a local council kind of thing. Like, the powers just to, you know, decide on small little things. But no, he said, no, I'm going to continue in the autocratic rule, which stood my family so well yeah. over the last I'm going to be the years. next Peter the Great. I'm going to be the next Michael Romanoff. I'm going to be the, yeah. Exactly, Rubbish. but the, what he hadn't really taken into account is that Russia was industrializing at a rapid pace, like almost like Chinese levels of if, if speed of industrialization. It had gone from being so rural to being at the twi- beginning of the 20th century, you had massive cities like St. Petersburg, Moscow, industrial centers. It, it was very much trying to catch Western Europe, which had already gone through this process. Like it had a, yeah, it had a lot of Western Europe's um, technology, but it didn't have any of its social reforms or any of this. So Russia is literally like becoming a tinderbox of tensions where people are working, living in really poor conditions, uh, there's ra- there's often famine, there's often food shortages, and you know it's just a stifling um, environment because there is a secret police, the Okhrana, um, who like and in one year in the mid, uh, I think is in 1906, like they assassinate over or sorry executed over like 1400 people. We can assassinate is okay, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. I Let think alone how many people were just sent. And they're the, to, ones, we, and they're the ones we know about. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It could, how, well, it could be twice that. Like exactly, and that, and this isn't to even the amount of people were exiled famously, like you know, tro- just, everything from Trotsky to Lenin and you disappeared. You just be disappeared, like. Yeah. huge anti-semitism too awesome, just yeah. the time of pogroms all this type of thing brutal so, brutal oppression of jewish folks like absolutely brutal exactly and there's great censorship so for example when the when he actually came to power in 1896 over 400,000 muscovites turned up um to for the coronation and they expected to kind of get you know food and uh, maybe a, a, some sort of trinket to commemorate or whatever. But there was a massive stampede and like 1,400 people died. And this was called a Kodinki field disaster. And what really, I suppose, is is notable about this is that it was completely suppressed. No one ever found out about mm. this. And Nicholas II and his wife, Alexandra of Hess, they continued on as if nothing happened. All of the other royalty of Europe were around. You know, they kept going on with all their stately processions, all this type of thing, when 1,400 people had just died. So it was a really inauspicious start to his reign. Then, moving on a little bit, by 1904, 1905, he 
Nicholas, like all the Romanovs, considered themselves great uh, conquerors. Yeah. So he had his eye on Manchuria and Korea, and he wanted to take this over. <laughs> and his stake. Yeah, his only China was relatively weak at this time, so his only rival was Japan. And in not, the not, traditionally, not a, not the rival you want. <laughs> no, Japanese mm. are not the people you want to fight. But even from a racial point Korea. of view, at yeah. this time, that like the the kind of I'm views sure, at yeah, this like, time was that uh, no way could it. Well, we're European an Asian, and they're Asian. Yeah, yeah an yeah, Asian yeah, power yeah. could just never pure be just pure racism. Like. So he was very confident, and he was like, "I'll go. This will be a quick little war. I'll win it. I'll I'll win half of China and the Korean Peninsula for Russia, and I will." once again be the conquering hero yeah. become popular in Russia a, a or whatever conven- a convenient little war is not what they call them like. exactly but it was an utter defeat Rome, uh, the Russians were completely humiliated over 70,000 people died and it was just seen as a great loss of prestige yeah. you know um, and adding to this in this year 1904 to 1905 so you didn't just have military defeat you also had mass strikes in Russia in 1905 and see, what we have to remember is that vast majority of Russian people considered the Romanovs their, they called him their little father. Yeah. Like they considered he was, a, he They're was. as close as to God emperors as Europe ever really had. This is it. And they often the mo- blamed. Yeah, besides Rome. Besides the Roman emperor. <laughs> Rome one and two. They, I suppose they often blamed all the problems on the people around yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, the politicians it's, it's the around. Fault. It's, it's the not nobles' the, fault. It's not it's the czar, you know. The czar wouldn't do that to us. Exactly. So, but in 1905, anyway, there was this famous incident called Bloody Sunday, and you had a peaceful march. Thousands were marching within uh, St. Petersburg, and they had, like, signs saying, you know, God saved the czar. So mm. these weren't revolutionaries. But... They opened fire on the, on the, on the crowd. You had over 100 died. Um... And this sort of shifted the opinion. The vast majority of people then began to think, well, maybe he isn't our, our caring father or little yeah. father. Maybe he is actually. Maybe some of this is actually his fault. Yeah, maybe that tyrant. War, remember that yeah. war where my children were killed? It was uh, slightly the emperor's fault. Exactly. And adding to this, obviously, as we said, the level of repression that was going on, the amount of exile, the amount of imprisonment, mm. all this. Like, it is easy when you look at these cartoons, as you said, Jacob, to think, oh, these, look how, what a lovely family these guys are. And why would anyone want to, want to, to tear down the Romanov dynasty? But it, Russia wasn't a good place to live. Politi- you know, political the vast exi- majority of Political people. exiles at this time would include such people as... You're talking Trotsky, Lenin. Lenin's own brother had tried to kill a Romanov, yeah, I believe. Right, yeah. uh, so, you know, he had a personal grudge yeah. there too. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, but even just any, anyone who was an intellectual was nearly thrown out. You know what I mean? So fled. You can't have anyone thinking too hard about this. <laughs> and, and, the cla- and the classic thing with the, the, the Jewish pogroms around this time, this is, a, this is like rife for the anti-Semite thing where... There's the there's already the cultural and religious belief of that they're uh, you know they're anti-Christian or whatever. There's a lot of uh, migration out of Russia of Jewish folks at this in, during this period too. Lo- lots, uh, pri- principally to the U.S. but to the rest of Europe as well. Yeah. So. Oh yeah, and it just the, the, even the regime. He had a prime minister called Stolypin who was I, I think eventually assassinated in Kiev himself at the opera I think, and the noose uh, the the common name for a noose in Russia was Stolypin's Stolypin's necktie. So, you know, the government was associated <laughs> with repression. So yeah. I suppose all of this led up to this tinderbox in 1917. Um, so there was 
a lot of reasons why the Romanovs were it, it just It just bears uh, mm. repeating as well that like in 1917, we're three years also into World War One, in which Russia is also heavily, obviously heavily involved in that it declares war after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And Russian forces are getting mauled. Like the, yeah. like the, the, the war on the German front is brutal. Like yeah. it's really, really bad. Yes, and Nicholas himself, he was extreme. Like th- there was a few problems. His wife was German, so obviously <laughs> not great. Yeah, not yeah. great. Not great media wise. Not, not 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 a good look. Yeah, like there was a, they considered Hence the whole return our princesses thing yes, we mentioned yeah, earlier. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and in in nineteen fifteen, rather than continuing to blame bad generals, he dis- Nicholas decided to take personal control of the army, and Mistake. he was rubbish. Yeah, he was he was really really rubbish. Like he didn't really was to blame your mistakes on other people when you when you're literally leading yeah. the forces. Yeah, and he was right. famous like, he, but he was also famous for like for chronic indecisiveness. Mm-hmm. Like he hated making big mm-hmm. decisions. And like even there was a there was a joke in Saint Petersburg that was like the two most powerful men in Russia are the Tsar and whoever he had spoken to last. <laughs> that was sort of the, <laughs> the running joke about him, and because of this. He was away at the front in 1915 yep. and who was left back home was Alexandra. So obviously this German. So for racist reasons, yep. people didn't like her. I trust her. Yep. It, she, she had c- trusted advisors. She, she had Rasputin, <laughs> which we will be going into it, uh, in a lot of detail yeah. in an upcoming... Uh, yeah, I think we have to say Rasputin's a big part of the Anastasia film. He's the main antagonist, yes, right? We're going to save him. We're going to do a full episode on Rasputin on the Patreon. Patreon.com slash Real History Podcast. Yeah, and I just think it's important to say just in terms of inaccuracies, he's a great villain in the film, but it does portray Rasputin as actually wanting to bring down the Romanov dynasty. Obviously, that wasn't the case that's in the reality. That's the exact opposite. Yeah. That's where his power is right. He, he 100% believed in the, so, the, the rule by one man and that Russia needed a fadder. Uh, so just, like to put a, just to put a fine point on it, the biggest war in the history of the world is on. The Russian Tsar is, in the, is on the front uh, losing and has left his unpopular wife back to rule the country with the advice of this singularly bizarre figure in history so the russian yeah. people are not and they're really it. bad at ruling because they're making because a lot of their decisions through prayer yeah and stuff so like this making it up as they go. Who, who will be the new war minister or the agriculture minister well i'll have to have a quick prayer to work that yeah. one out like it's not the best way like to rule they do, a like how they do it in the vatican like <laughs> exactly uh, so all of this anyway leads us up to the crucial year of 1917 the or the multiple revolutions yeah like it's often forgot there's two revolutions is, yeah. in this one year and the first one i suppose we could we probably call it the february revolution so you have this war weary poverty stricken population who are just fed up you know they've asked for democratic rights they've asked for civil rights it's been refused so many times sometimes when the czar would be in trouble he'd be like yeah 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 i'll i'll give you everything you need you can have your parliament but then at the last minute he would pull back and retain the power so like people were just fed up and on the 23rd of february um international woman's day Thousands of women went on strike in South St. Petersburg and joined the industrial workers who had already gone on strike. And they all were demanding bread, freedom, peace. And they turned up in Nevsky Prospect, which is like the, one of the main centers of St. Petersburg. 
what does Nicholas II do uh, to stem this problem? He abolishes the Duma. So what the little bit parliament, of the, the parliament that was there was abolished and he instigates a military crackdown. So probably the worst decision <laughs> you could possibly... I just have been my notes here. Idiot. <laughs> so that probably... in, in, in a strong field of bad decisions, this might be the worst one. Like. Exactly. Um, so initially, some of his... About a quarter of a million people turn up here. So like Russian is at a standstill. And some of his troops, his loyal Cossack troops, open fire and they begin to shoot on the crowd. Um, half of the military though is completely uh, disgusted by this they're seeing that the people are being shot on and there's a massive mutiny and the soldiers of the Petrograd because at this time St. Petersburg to sound less German had been renamed Petrograd uh, the Petrograd garrison goes over to the revolution it gives it its arms it arms it and it marches towards on the 27th of February just a couple of days later to uh, the Taurid Palace and they basically form a Soviet, which is like a workers' council, and a provisional government is finally saw, uh, is, is brought into place. So Russia is suddenly catching up uh, very, very quickly. Very violently. Yes, very, very violently, and all because of, let's be honest, like 20, 30 years of misrule. You could even go further, yeah. you know. A century, uh, maybe. Exactly. So... This, only a couple of days later, Nicholas is having a word with his generals and his generals are basically like, look, the game is up. Shut up, you fucking idiot. Yeah. It's over. Like, uh, it's over. It's abdication time. So he, re- <laughs> yeah, he, he reckons... You've ruined it, Nick. You've ruined it. You've ruined it. And he hands, like, I do You know have a why quote. you kept saying all or nothing? It's nothing. It's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do. He does. He actually hands it over in favor of his brother, Mikhail. Um, and I love this because like his brother's going to fucking do anything about it. Like, yeah, you know, his brother's weird. like, I don't want to be the czar. You're fucking crazy. <laughs> so he just says no. Um, and uh, yeah, and so so finally, um, Nicholas just abdicates and he says, you know, there is no sacrifice I would not bear for the salvation of our mother Russia. So that's what he says in his abdication. And I just have my notes here, except maybe sharing power. But, you know, uh, so obviously there was a few sacrifices. But this brings us to, I suppose, the next stage of this revolution. So at this stage, the Romanovs are, I suppose, they're in under house arrest more yeah. than anything else, you yeah. know. Um, after in between February and October. Exactly. So in these few months, they're, they're protected. They're not like they've, they've lost power, obviously, but they maintain their the pro- wealth. The provisional government is, is a bit unsure as to what to do with them. 100%. Really and it's, it's, it's led kind of by a aristocrat because it's sort of a, it's a provisional government. So it's a nascent sort of dem- democratic yeah. government. Um, and it's sort of a mixture of different power groups. So you have a socialist called Kerensky who is one of the main figures, but you also have Prince Lvov. So you have a, a kind of a mix of the aristocrat with the bourgeois. Because everyone pretty much agreed that he needed to go anyway, oh, yeah. right? So, yeah. Because that's, we, you know, in a simplified view, we would think of it as like, you know, the Bolsheviks. And that's what happened. And then, you know, Russia was communist. You know, well, it's this, a bit more complicated. Th- that's the fast that. forward version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I suppose what's important with this it's government... Delete Romanov. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, so what's important, I suppose, with this uh, revolution is that... Or with this new provisional government is that the one crucial decision it did, it made, was to continue the war. Yeah. So Russia at this time was this allied time. against the central powers, Germany, mm-hmm. Austria, Hungary in the war. Um, 
And it decided Russia, to, under the provisional government, to continue on in the war, which was an incredibly unpopular move. So all this time, between March and October, you have the Bolsheviks, who we'd need a whole podcast to go into, I think, but basically Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin's... Well, check out Death of Stalin, our episode yeah, from uh, yeah. season one. Just, just an interesting point to make, the German central intelligence at this point they knew all about lenin and trotsky and whatever and it was a german military power that smuggled lenin into russia in a, because in a they, seal train in a yeah. seal train yeah because yeah. they thought like this guy can knock russia out of war for us like you know a hundred percent and yeah. this is what oh, this is what happens lenin returns to to russia on the 26th of october he seizes control of this soviet um and provisional government the red guards they stormed the Winter Palace, the famous uh, f- uh, painting of this. If you ever want to watch it, I'd say over dramatized. They <laughs> overthrow the Duma, this the, this nascent democratic um, parliament, and you know this is the beginning of uh, the formation of a one-party Marxist state <laughs> that goes and, on and, to have and, a big and, influence. And, and crucially, these guys who do this, they are not. Uh, quite as undecided as to what to do with the Romanovs. No. <laughs> they have a pretty good idea what they want to do with the Romanovs. No, yeah, yeah. And, and this is 100%. <laughs> Lenin, like, couldn't... He had missed his opportunity a few times, and he said, history will not forgive us if we do not assume power now. So this is our big moment, and this is when, I suppose, we're leading up to the end game for yeah. the for for the romanovs you know but it wasn't like as easy as that in the in the beginning for for lenin right like we we go into a bit of a civil war at this stage yeah like so what first of all there is this treaty of brest levotsk thank you mark and this is in uh, 1918 there's an armistice you know and this is basically russia concedes a massive territorial loss like finland poland the baltic states they're all lost to the central powers, Germany, Austria, um, in exchange for peace, because Lenin wanted peace at all costs. Yep. But there is a civil war that stems out of this immediately. And on that, you've got the Bolsheviks or the Reds, uh, if you want to say it, so the, the communists who want to remold the world completely. Um, and then you Trotsky, the internationalists, like no borders, all that kind of stuff, yeah. Exactly. And then you have the whites on the other side, and that's your czarists, your military officers, and a healthy dollop of the Allied powers, so British, American. Yeah, influence, nobody would be shocked French. to learn that the, the Western powers uh, stick, their, stick their noses in here and, and, and try to fund the, the, what they regard as a, as a more uh, stabilized or Western style democracy that includes the aristocracy and the middle class, mm. or, or some of the middle class, let's say. And uh, and and they they basically stick their nose in to try and make sure that the civil war ends in a in a white victory over white. over the over the reds, but uh, doesn't go that way. Not to be, but that it's important to realize this uh, this that this was a period of civil war because this obviously informed the decisions which were made in relation to what the future of the Romanovs dynasty would be. So at this stage, they're in the hands of the Bolsheviks. Um, so Nicholas Alexandra who incidentally is uh, the grandchild of Queen Victoria. Victoria So it just shows you how intermingled these people are. There are five children, so Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia, and Alexei, so the the crown prince. Uh, They're all imprisoned by the Cheka. So these were the, this new, Lenin's new secret police who didn't, 
they didn't mess around. The heavies. You know? Yeah, these guys were like ideologically Hardcore driven. Hardcore ideologues, you know? yeah. They would have been a ha- hatred towards the monarchy that would like, would, you know, even even scare uh, a moderate republic. Even scare me on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the family were moved around a bit, but they eventually ended up in Siberia in Yekaterinburg. So basically out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it became known as the House of Special Purpose, which for me, that just sounds really menacing. Ominous, like, yeah. You know Ominous what I mean? Right, yeah. And the, fa- the family are hidden here. They're kind of in straightened times like this is it's not luxury anymore it's an old merchant's house that's been you know confiscated by the russians by the bolsheviks um and i suppose but they never i don't think they ever thought that they would be uh, assassinated you know um like if you think about it george v was the cousin of nicholas so they looked they looked for exile yeah when the provisional government still existed. They, As the king of the, the German emperor is also a cousin. Yeah, they're these, all, these are all, right. all intermingled. They, they would be forgiven for thinking that maybe they will be exiled. And they weren't allowed, they weren't given permission to, uh, to go to Britain, which is, you know, uh, one of these big um, what, what ifs of history. Because even if you look at old photos, George V and Nicholas II of Russia, they look like, they, look like they could be twins, yeah, you know what I mean? Twins, yeah. But anyway, that's getting off the topic. Um, so, fearing encirclement during this civil war, we believe Lenin gave the order for the um, assassination. So, they, he feared that the Bolsh- that the Romanovs would be freed and would become like a totem. A figurehead, yeah. Yeah, where yeah. the White Army would, would, would rally against. And, and, and sort of the White Army would, in, would, would force Nicholas to accept the constitutional monarchy, yeah. in a real sense. And that if they murdered them, and all their family, that it would solidify in the minds of the people, they're not coming back. The jig is up. The jig is up, yeah. you know. It's the Soviets or nothing. Like yeah. So on the 16th of July, 1918, um, they were woken in the middle of the night and they were told that they were being moved to the basement um, where they would be safe. And Yorovsky, who was in, he was a, he was a Cheka policeman, he was in control of this operation and he explained to the Tsar, he brought all the family down. You could imagine the chilling scene. And when he explained to Nicholas that they, by order of the Ural Soviet, you are ought to be all to be assassinated, like Nicholas. Executed. Executed, whatever. Uh, yeah, like Nicholas couldn't believe it. He was like, what, what? So much so that like, you know, the children had all, there was 17 pounds worth of diamonds um, sewn into all their clothes because they believed they were being moved and that this was this money this, this these diamonds would be their ticket out. which allegedly had a secondary purpose of deflecting some of the bullets as eventually, well eventually yeah um, but like it's a hard to imagine the horror that must have went on in that home because it lasted for 20 minutes Yurovsky shot the Tsar in the head um, as far as we we're aware but a lot of the men, they were drunk because they, they didn't want to kill young girls. Like yeah. these were, yeah, these, awful, like some yeah. of these young, there were some of these were, you were young women. They had charmed these soldiers over the, f- the weeks before. They'd got to know them a bit. So they had to get the men incredibly drunk to do this. And a lot of them just shot Nicholas because none of them wanted to shot, <laughs> shoot any of the <laughs> women. Imagine them all just standing around <laughs> shooting the one guy and the rest of the family just like yeah. in horror. A hundred percent. This is kind of what the, the, the report 
states happened. So they ended up bayoneting them to death. Like it was pretty horrible. And I would just say they also three of their servants and their doctor too. It's often forgotten. Yeah. Those four people. Completely innocent. Yeah. They were loyal to the family. I mean, obviously the children are innocent anyway, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And these were, and they they were completely butchered and the children would have been from age 16. So the the youngest boy, uh, Alexei, to 22, Maria, the oldest. And they were all butchered. They were brought to a forest in a mine shaft. Uh, I don't want to go into too many gory details, but acid and petrol were used here. Um, and the bodies were buried. And the Bolsheviks announced to the world that Nicholas only had been assassinated. And they didn't say anything about the rest of the family. And mm-hmm. this is a major reason Spurs why. on all of the stories, yeah. 100 years of stories. Um, up until, I mean... It's 1991 is when these bodies are properly examined. So, mm-hmm. you know, right after the fall of the... Fall of the of the Soviet Union. Yeah. yeah. So in the days just following that, just to yeah, mention sorry. as well, that 27 other Romanov family members, so you had archdukes, duchesses, they were all killed too. Yeah, because there's a... So there's it was a like wiping everyone out. It was, it was a purge. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, they wanted, they wanted to make sure that any of the identifiably powerful Romanovs were taken off the board. 100%. Because otherwise the whites could just... You know, rally rally around whoever was surviving yeah. yeah and as jacob said so it took till the although the bodies were discovered earlier it did take till the fall of the soviet union um for an inquiry uh under uh, was the dying days of this gorbachev allowed an inquiry yes, yeah. and then it, the results came out um in 1991 the dna matched as you said to i think prince michael of kent so english royalty british royalty and Prince Philip, uh, who was the Queen Elizabeth of England's husband. Yeah. So you, they, it is certain that these were the, yes. the, the bodies. But interestingly, what happened there was the two of them were not buried at that site. Same spot. Yeah, yeah it was a, a different spot. So basically, 91, uh, this analysis came out. And it confirmed that these were, this was the you know, Tsar family, the royal family. They died two people missing uh one a girl like completely still making it possible for yeah. this film to come out with it leaves pl- it nice and plausible open. deniability yeah, in 1997 nice and, and then it wasn't until 2007 that there was the discovery of two more bodies matching the description like the story was they Ale- were it was alexei i believe and yeah alexei and, and anastasia or one of her sisters yeah. you know one basically you can just tell the gender and overall age, right? Like it's they 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 were cremated as well, so you know you're not working with much there. But uh, DNA testing confirmed we have the proper count of royals, so it can be hard to tell who is who. But we have but the, we have the right number of them. We have the right number, and they match the ages of the people. And it's it's a closed book now on whether Anastasia actually mysteriously survived though (laughs) even in 97 it was you know it was pretty much a certainty but it was pretty much a certainty the whole time yeah being honest and then i guess a final nail in the coffin came in 2007 yeah and now they're kind of being rehabilitated in modern russia um like boris yeltsin the president at the time like in 1998 i believe he said that this was a great crime like it shouldn't have happened um and now they are all the family are 
saints of the Orthodox Church, mm-hmm. believe it or martyrs, not. So yeah, martyrs for the for the faith or, or whatever. So and there's cathedrals built to the in their name, and uh, I believe they're all reburied now in Saint. They are, yeah, they've all been yeah. reburied with all, like yeah. with honors, like yeah. Yeah, so it's a uh, it's quite a roller coaster ride. It's uh, it, it's it's a it's a dramatic fall for one of the longest reigning royal houses you could think of, like you know, yeah, for so long. And they were so powerful, and to go from that to yes, like, ignominy of their of their end, you know exactly. And you think if they had have maybe just given a little bit of early, if if in nineteen oh five when those original their kind of early earliest kind of prequel to the yeah, revolution was, happened, if he, he had a given power, then just badly advised. What could have happened? <laughs> he was just you know badly. It wasn't his fault. He was badly advised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And who was one of these bad advisors? Well, as mentioned <laughs> on our Patreon, we'll be talking about the main antagonist of this film. Rasputin. Uh, please keep an eye out for that. But uh, beyond that, are there any uh, other overall, I mean, inaccuracies that we want to touch on briefly as far as this film? Well, he obviously didn't have a green-eyed spectral horse, Rasputin. You don't know. You which he there. could run you around. There. That's you true. That's true. Uh, I choose to believe he did have that. <laughs> um but no, like I think we kind of covered most of them. They're more about timeline, that type of thing. Um, and the fact that I suppose the big one for me was that Rasputin, sh- it would have made more sense if Lenin, and I don't think they would have been brave enough to make Lenin the enemy of the film, but he really hated the Romanovs. Yeah. You know what I mean? He wanted to overthrow yeah. them. He had a personal and an ideological He's the arch reason. Ne- nemesis, yeah. really. Lenin, like, but we decided, they decided to use Rasputin and that, is good in a way because it made me want to look into Rasputin more and now I've gone and looked and now you're far too bi- much. Michael's practically his new biography. <laughs> yeah, he's got a book with him, basically, that we'll be getting into on the Patreon. But yeah, um, but yeah it was a Patreon's choice uh, almost, like, because this is one with fantasy elements and everything, it was almost mm. like, is it, this is a bit of a weird one. We probably wouldn't have picked it on our own, but I think it's an excellent way to dip into this history and in uh, the past we've done the death of Stalin if you want to learn more about what comes after this Um, but I also think some of the bits we touched on here um, there's a TV show called The Great uh, which is some of that history that we might get further into if we want to zoom in a bit more uh, on on parts of this Um, but yeah I think any recommended reading for I mean, Russian history is a big topic yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> for what we've discussed today. I, I will defer to Michael on this because uh, my, my recommendation would be to listen to the Patreon episode of Michael talking about Rasputin. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's one one. All right. Uh, well, I suppose, like, depends what you're into. First of all, um, a book came out last year, Anthony Beaver. Like, this thing is a doorstop. Do last year I mean? meaning when? Uh, I think it was 2023. I'm right. not sure. It's uh, called Russia... Um, what was it called? Uh, Revolution and Civil War, nineteen seventeen to twenty one. Anthony Beaver, who is you know he's a, a very famous historian. He's done things on Stalingrad, yeah. a lot of World War Two yeah. uh, stuff as well. So really, really thorough, really thorough, especially for the Civil War. Um, then you have if you want a light one that jumps through Russian history, um, and tries to make it a little bit light-hearted because Russian history is really bleak, yeah. really bleak. It's a tall it, order to make yeah, it. Yeah, it's a book by Martin Sixsmith. It's called Russia, A Thousand Year Chronicle of the Wild East. And then if you really want to know about the Romanovs, uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore um, has a history of the Romanovs, which is excellent. And then 
Rasputin, which and I'd really recommend this biography. It came out in 2016. Um, Douglas Smith. He's considered kind of the authority on Rasputin because he went back and he looked at the original police records um, and stuff like this about a lot of the crimes and outrageous behavior Rasputin was supposed to have done. And he got to the truth behind it. So it's Rasputin, Fate, Power and the Twilight of the Romanovs. Uh, by Douglas Smith, so really recommend that book. Um, I, I would also recommend uh, Mark Galliotti's A Short History of Russia, which is just a, an overview, very digestible, very easy to read. Excellent. Thanks so much, guys. Um, anything else? I think that's quite enough, isn't it? On the- <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> a good amount there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of, we, we fitted in a lot of history I in there. So, yeah. It was like rapid fire history there, so I sorry. Very, I hope you all kept up, lads. I very nearly went on a mad tangent about Peter the Great. Like, I could see that in your eye. You're like, let's get to the Roman it together. Thank you so much to everyone for listening, and thank you to our patrons for suggesting this lovely film. If you want to influence future suggestions, once more, I'll give you the URL, patreon.com slash real history podcast but for now everybody thank you that's the end of the real cheers bye